0: it's monday july 6th i'm stephen fee and this is the pen pod a limited run podcast from pen america on today's edition a conversation between playwrights lynn nottage and jeremy o harris it's from our podcast these truths part of the pen world voices festival then how policymakers are working to remake the social media platforms i'm stephen fee all that coming up on the pen pod What is theater right now? How can we reimagine theater amid a pandemic and an uprising against white supremacy? And how has anti-blackness infiltrated theater? Here, we listen in on a conversation between acclaimed playwrights Jeremy O. Harris and Lynn Nottage.
1: I I do think you're, you're right, is that all of us BIPOC folks, white folks, we have to interrogate our own implicit bias and, and our complicity in perpetuating all these harmful na- narratives. It, it goes back to just decolonizing our, our imaginations. I remember s- sitting through Slate Play and I saw both off Broadway and on Broadway and having to navigate my own discomfort as I was laughing and then the next moment dealing with trauma and having to deal with emotions that were unfamiliar and challenging. And I think that the best of theater does that. where it, it, it disrupts our sensibilities and forces us to really think about, well, what are my beliefs? And how, how am I complicit? And is, is this me? or and how is it like me? Or how is it different from me? We took a trip down South and we followed the trail of, of enslaved people. Wow. And so we began in Georgia, in Macon. And then we worked our way up the East Coast. And one of the first places that we went was a museum of the Daughters of the Confederacy. And I think that perhaps we were the first Black people to ever step foot in the space. And we did so because we didn't know what it was. Wow. And it was shocking how some of these items and images could be celebrated in a space because no one had ever stepped into that space to challenge them. And when we went in immediately, the curator said, oh my God, oh my God, just like that. She's like, we're changing all of this. We're gonna (laughs) contextualize it. (laughs) And she was super apologetic. And I thought our mere presence may change how that museum conducts itself in the future. But I thought there are all these spaces around the country that need to be disrupted
2: I I think we're in this moment right now where we want to sanitize those imaginaries. In a lot of ways, that sanitation of those imaginaries is less fueled by Blackness and more fueled by white supremacy, right? One of the best tools of white supremacy is amnesia. Like Tina Fey, in pulling those 30 Rock episodes with blackface, has enacted more white supremacy than putting blackface in her TV show. Can you
1: discuss that?
2: I'm curious. If if we were truly doing some sort of restorative justice, she and all of us would have to sit with those being a part of her legacy. Those things can be a part of your legacy and also sort of a testament to a person's later growth, right? Right. But the fact that like less than a year ago, she was saying, I will never apologize for jokes. And now she's like, actually, I've read White Fragility and I shouldn't do this. Um, mm-hmm. is like it's it's so fucked. I I have a desire. I have this big play that I was gonna write for, for my thesis play that was all about Tyler Perry and my family and my relationship to blackness and being poor and wanting to be a theater maker and never seeing that. August Wilson portrayed poor Black families, but like, there were poor Black families in like the 40s. By the time he got to like the 90s, he was like more interested in Black ascension. That is not what my family back home looks like. And the only person that I can look at for an understanding of that is Tyler Perry. Also, my family feels seen by Tyler Perry. And yet, when I look at his understandings of Blackness, a lot of them can be seen under a lens of full offense. But if you're a student of someone like the Wooster Group, you're like, is he an experimental playwright? You know what I mean? Like, are we giving him less credit for being an actual disruptor and experimenting with Black identitarian politics? Because like one of the best plays I've ever seen, and one of the most offensive things I've ever seen, was mm-hmm. Le- LeCompte's um, Emperor Jones oh, with oh, Kate but, yeah, right,
1: it was very and- disturbing.
2: Yeah. I was like 18 at the Goodman Theater watching this with my eyes like saucers because it felt so exhilarating and transgressive. And I think Kate Balk is one of the coolest performers ever. And I was such a fervent fan of white experimental theater that I always had given them all the benefit of the doubt in their provocation, right? Like i had always assumed that if a company like the Wooster Root was doing something, that had a fence built into the thing that they were doing, they were trying to engage with this problem. In my mind, I gave them all these reasons. I was like, you know, America's only contribution to world theater is minstrelsy. There's a history of white female fear of black masculinity in America. Like these are all the reasons that they were obviously doing this thing with Emperor Jones, right? And sitting next to me at the end of the show for the talkback was this young black girl who was so upset she was from Northwestern, Now, I'll never forget it. She was like, weeping and raised her hand. She was like, I just want to know why you would do this, because here's what I know about blackface. And then she was like, and this is what it made me felt. And I felt her pain, even though I hadn't had the same experience of witnessing the show. And so the entire audience looked at Elizabeth Lecomte, basically everyone willing her to be a genius and say something that would comfort this young woman. And she just chewed her gum and sat back in her chair, and she was like, why did I do it? Because I wanted to.
1: Yeah, that's so dangerous.
2: It's so dangerous. But in relationship to 30 Rock, this isn't to like valorize that sort of blitheness. But in my memory of that, in my understanding of that, there's no way that Elizabeth Lecomte can ever just like step away from that being a part of her legacy. Like she actively stood in it being a part of her legacy in a way that Tina Fey had as well a year ago. And as we start to have more consciousness about anti-Blackness in all of the spaces of creation that we have. I think that it's going to be hyper important for white people to stand by their legacy and not erase it because they're never going to be erased from our memories, right? One of the tools of white supremacy is to like erase those things from being in our memory.
1: It's the phrase, and you've heard me say this before, and which I love, is the transgressive unwillingness to know, which is a kind of haughtiness, which permits folks like Elizabeth Comp to create these cultural crimes. Mm -hmm. because they have no awareness of of what the the full implications are. They have this desire really to deconstruct something that they don't understand. And in their rush to be transgressive and provocative and experimental, they do not fully unpack how dangerous and harmful those images uh, of blackface were and their implicit anti-blackness in doing it. And so I, I, I totally agree with you, but we have this enormous shift that we have to turn around because the entire theater ecosystem is 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 polluted and is toxic and is not fully embracing how anti-black it has been from you know the universities to the training to downtown theater to Broadway. If you think about university and training programs and how number one we have to decolonize the canon, but we also have to expand the way we teach. Theater, yeah. And I'm just really curious because you're very fresh out of the academy, and I know you had a fraud experience. And I went to Yale many years before you, and I had perhaps an even more fraud experience because the racism. Even though we had a, a black uh, dean of the drama school, <laughs> the racism still was so embedded that every day going to class, I had to resurrect my spirit and run the gauntlet.
2: Yes. And you were the first Black woman to go to Yale, right?
1: No, no, no. I was the the second Black um, female playwright. And while I was there, the first was in the active process of suing the school. So she Mm. was in litigation while she was going to class because they wanted to push her out. And she's like, I'm not leaving.
2: Wow. Wow. There's so much that we have to unpack and unlearn. And so many of the structures that we continue to teach and are completely ignorant of anybody but white male bodies. I was talking about this with Magda Romanska. I should amend that and say white male able-bodied, right? You know, she and I were talking about the incompatibility of both Blackness and disability with the the Aristotelian-like form of tragedy. She was like, if, if society has already imposed a tragic flaw upon you, that is not a flaw of your own making, but a flaw of society then how do you watch someone overcome that or succumb to it like you can't it's not the same as watching willie loman or you know Man. walter white she's like so actually the greeks are incompatible to the disabled body to the black body and maybe something that we should look towards is like the structure of chinese tragedy essentially that the tragic flaw is societal and generally people don't overcome the tragedy of that flaw until the afterlife, usually the last act of these tragedies. It is so fucking cool. That theoretical understanding of tragedy would probably help a lot of young Black and Brown students, a lot of disabled students, navigate how to write plays differently than the ways in which they're being taught now, you know?
1: Absolutely. The Academy is what shapes modern American theater. And so the change really has to begin there in the way in which students are taught and what they have access to. I teach a course called American Spectacle, which is looking at theater beyond the proscenium. And one of the specific reasons that I began teaching this course is I wanted to liberate my students from the Eurocentric notion of structure Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and to expand where theater can happen and what theater can look like.
0: You can listen to that entire conversation as part of the last episode of These Truths, a limited-run podcast that's part of our Penn World Voices Festival. You can find that whole episode and other conversations from the series on our website, pen.org. Section 230. It might sound like a bit of Washington legalese, but it's a provision of federal law that's now at the center of how Facebook and Twitter might face new repercussions for content posted on those platforms. The law essentially limits liability for those companies when it comes to posts on their sites. But with a growing number of Americans experiencing online harassment and abuse, there are new efforts underway to rein in the freewheeling nature of the platforms. But analysts say a rush to tear down Section 230 overlooks how it supports an open internet. We have an analysis of some of the proposed, if flawed, solutions. You can read about that on our website, pen.org. And that's our episode for Monday, July 6th. Join us tomorrow for The Pen Pod. We'll have an interview with acclaimed author, Julia Alvarez. You can listen to all our episodes at pen.org. Follow us at Pen America on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Sign up on our website for our daily D.A.R.E. newsletter, where we track major stories about literature, free expression, and the news of the world. I'm Stephen Fee for Pen America. This is The Pen Pod. See you tomorrow.